Jabrew with me, the Lizza. And me, the kid himself. And this is the podcast where two friends talk about two of our favorite things, fish and beer. Fish and beer. And you were just laying down some awesome pebbles and marbles right there. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about pebbles and marbles, and we're also going to talk about today a week of uh, groove, I believe. Correct. So what you referred to them as viral... Songs, yeah. Songs. And I, I, what, what do you mean when you say that? I don't, I don't think of it like songs that are like people everybody's listening to. I think it's a personal taste. It's like you kind of cycle through stuff. So for a long time, I was into like Free and you know Cross-eyed and Painless, and you you kind of cycle through songs that you can just listen to on loop nonstop. So they're viral for yourself. Correct. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. Yeah, they're songs that you just get hooked on real hard with fish and their songs you'll go back and study the history of and listen to every version of and listen to them you know through all the phases and and that type of thing yeah cool so mine is week groove correct and yours is pebbles and marbles pebbles and marbles yes and, and let's talk about a little bit how you got into this song okay so this is actually really interesting because i, I think one of the most interesting parts about this podcast is that it's making me a better fish fan like, I listened to the previous episodes, and I'm like, damn, I got that wrong. Damn, I got that wrong. And I would agree with that. It's starting to force me to kind of look at stuff in a, in a different lens. And that's really interesting because, you know, I, I got this at Baker's Dozen. It was uh, 7-26, 2017. Correct. Uh, so that was the most recent time they played this song. Correct. Baker's Dozen. And it was the first time I've ever gotten this song, and I didn't know what it was. Right. I remember knowing the the general melody, and I knew I'd heard it before from Fish, but I knew I had never gotten it before and live, and I knew it was a bust out. Yeah. So, I mean, the last time it was played before this was in 2014, and that was uh, in, during their summer tour. So, I mean, it's been a while since. What show was that? Uh, it's 8. 03-2014. It was at Verizon Wireless Amphitheater. Uh, it was before... <laughs> it was... The song before it was 555. The song after it was The Line. <laughs> Talk about a snipe snipe. I like me. The I Line. Uh, yeah, I like I The Line. I would have been pissed. I would have been like, yeah, Pebbles and Mar... Oh, man. Really put this in a weird spot. So describe, made this me, describe either the first time you... When is the first time you heard this song? So apparently I was at this show. I do not remember it. It was 12-31-2011. MSG. It was part of the New Year's and, run. And New Year's actually, run. Okay. It was New Year's Eve. It was actually like old Lang Syne night. We were like... In 2011. Correct. Got it. Um, not going to lie. So there was a lot 0. of... Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, reasons why I, I cannot remember. And... Um, it, what was interesting to me is while we're sitting in Baker's Dozen, uh, it, it's got this, like, eerie familiarity to me. And, like, I don't know why. And when they get to the chorus, the pebbles and marbles, like, things on my mind. I just That's start when you, my, know you know you yeah, know it. Yeah, it starts, right. like, rekindling. It's almost like when uh, a smell will trigger a memory, almost, where, like, you start smelling something and you're like, oh, wait a second. And the funny part is, is for that tour the entirety of it I was sitting in like section 100 of MSG like right either on the side or dead up to the stage so the thing that starts triggering because I believe this night we're on the floor is that we're standing in front yeah, of we, the lights yeah you and I you're talking about Baker's Dozen yes, you yes. and I were on the floor yes for right. the, the, the night we got Pebbles and Marbles correct? right so they come in with that chorus and we're standing where we're standing and I'm like wait a second these lights 
and like this position and like where we're at like because we were on page side rage side whenever we were on the floor and i was just like i know i now remember so you were getting like a deja vu type familiarity where everything kind of just like felt like it was falling into place and you had had felt like you'd lived that moment before yes so i i think that's what sparked this song into like my viral slot we'll call it like things move in and out of uh and when I, <laughs> when I started going back and doing uh, history of it and seeing what other shows it played at and, and doing all this stuff, I mean, I was saying before how the podcast does some things, it also doesn't uh, do some things for me. And that's, I started listening to so many versions of it, I almost started hating it. So I, I was, I'm a little nervous to continue to like pick up my viral songs. I like them to stay that way. And, and I feel like you're almost like forcing it out. It's like when a song is brand new on the radio and you play it on loop to the point where you can't listen to it anymore. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> How many total times has Fish played that song in Fish history? Uh, it's a little over 20. Hold on. I can give you the exact. Uh, it's not that many. Which is laughably low. Yeah. Can, I mean, compared to how many songs you had to probably listen to for Week of Pog. Yeah, I had, like I had to go through a lot of songs yeah. for Week of Pog. Uh, cool. So, yeah, I just want to rehash this story a little bit uh, because after we got this song at Baker's Dozen, you hated it. You said you hated it. You that didn't like that they played it. Yep. You yeah. were like, oh, what song I thought was the that? Slot, I thought the positioning was yeah, terrible like, in the what set. what song was that? Yeah. Uh, and then we started to listen to it more and more and more and more and more. And we realized it was rare and we realized it was a bust out. And uh, yeah, it just gets, it gets, that catchiness gets to you, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because we went on a trip right after that to Colorado. We were out there visiting breweries and stuff. And I think I played it every time we were in the car. Right. You, that was definitely, <laughs> if you, yeah, that viral song for you is a very good term for what that happened. Yeah. Took hold of you because you listened to that song over and over and over and over and over and over and over for a while. Um, but it's great. It's catchy and it's great. And that legitimately probably is the rarest song that I've ever seen Fish play. Yeah. By like quantity, how, you know, often they have played that. That's probably the rarest song. Well, I've what's got. interesting, you know, it's from Round Room. So it's a, it's, it's a, 2.0-ish albums, so, I mean, they've only really been playing it since 2003, so that's kind of the the point, is that they've only played it about 20 times since 2003, 1.06% of their shows in total, but that's kind of a weird statistic, because anything at this point can have a low percentage of total shows played, because they've played so many Correct. concerts and Correct. shit, so... Um, Interesting you mentioned Round Room because what that song did for me at Baker Susan was force me to go back and listen to Round Room. And for me, that was always a throwaway album, huh. but there are a lot of really great gems on that album. Yeah, I mean... So I, I, so that what that's what that song sparked for me. And like you're saying, it turns you into a, a bigger Fish fan or a more learned Fish fan. That's what I feel like that song did for me. And I was like, man, I'm actually glad I got that song because it forced me to go back and re-listen to Round Room, which I thought was lame. <laughs> you know that that album opens with Pebbles and Marbles. It's yes. track one on the album. Yes. And I mean, there's <laughs> Walls of the Cave is on that album. Yeah, which is again uh, Forty Six Days. Yeah, another great. Yeah, <laughs> see, that's what I'm saying. You like, go back and you're like, wow, there's a lot of great music on here. Waves and is on this album though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be gems. <laughs> as a young, as I'm a sure very people. young fish fan who didn't get to experience all these things in the time that they were happening. 
you know, when I first liked fish, I wanted the I wanted the big songs. I wanted the down diseases. I wanted, you know, the weekabogs. I wanted all the big heavy hitters. And Round Room isn't like that. But again, this song forced me to go back and re-listen to it. And I was like, wow, I wouldn't probably have gone back and given this a legit listen if I didn't get Pebbles and Marbles at Baker's Dozen. You, interesting fact for me about Round Room. I think it's the most interesting uh CD cover. <laughs> it's it's a great CD cover. It's the ball. That's a room with a little window. Yeah. Yeah. In a it's forest. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, the f- fantastic. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but yeah. So I think what made Pebbles and Marbles viral for me is the hook at the end. It's uh, it's a major resolution, you know, music wise. It's very satisfying to your ear. And the fact that they found a way to kind of extend that section of the song, a lot of the jamming of it is on that, like, last two bars. So the pebbles and marbles, right. the things on my it mind. Builds. Those it two peaks. chords kind of just pass back and forth, yeah, and it allows for amazing dynamics. And I think by the end of the song, it's it's there's very few fish songs to me that do that, and I want to say a majority of them I do not like. So a perfect example is Backwards Down the Number Line. Backwards Down the Number Line is not a song that I enjoy. A lot of people do enjoy it, but I think they enjoy it for the same reason I like Bubbles and Marbles, and that is, is that it builds it by builds the end of it. It builds to a peak, yes. Yeah. There's, I um, mean, it's got a great set slot p- potential. You can put that anywhere in a set, and by the end of it, you're just like, yeah, and wait, re- like ready to go into the next song. Right. So, right. So what did you learn in listening back over your different Pebbles and Marbles? You did research, right? You went back and yeah. listened to a bunch. You said you were getting sick of, of it now. Yeah, I listened to all of them. I, so, <laughs> so I got a little you, nervous. What did you learn about it? Uh, in the earlier ones, it's kind of just standard. They don't really take it for a walk. And okay. I, I think uh, that peak and valley of like how they use the song is also uh, greatly tied to how often they play it. Right. So like now that we're getting it... Uh, uh, in Baker's Dozen, it was very, very open and jammy. They went off on it for a really long time. So that's why I think I kind of just got it in there because the, the, the peak just lasted forever. It was 10 minutes and 49 seconds, that song. So on the album, uh, hold on, let me see how sh- short it's. Do they always play it for the same general amount of time? Yeah, that's what I'm trying okay. to get at. So, so Pebbles and Marbles on the album is about 11 minutes, 47 right. or 41 so standard. seconds. standard. It's all standard yeah. the same. Yeah, so it, 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 it's like Fluffhead or You Enjoy Myself. It's like you know the length is going to be long. You Enjoy Myself is like 20 minutes long. Um, yeah, even sure. the album version, that's like I think it's almost twenty four minutes long. Um, and every specific syncopated, different version, you know, part of that song is the same every time. Right. So that is why I think I started getting nervous and starting to hate it because I started realizing that what I thought was an amazing peak in the middle of the show was just something that was standard. So I thought something special was happening for me, if that makes sense. Like, I thought I was seeing something that you don't normally see, only to slowly You were. Realize. You were getting a Pebbles and Marbles. Right, right. And it's rare. And that's why I, I came back around to it. And I'm like, you're just being stupid. You're just listening to a lot of Pebbles and Marbles right now. Um, this it, segues perfectly into my viral song. Yeah. Because basically what we're talking about now, my viral song is Weekapod Groove. Yes. And it's been my viral song. It is my viral song. It probably will always be my viral song. And I, like you were saying, there are a lot of Weekapogs in fish history. So I didn't listen to all of them. I read a bunch of articles about them. And uh, I, I was more interested going into this for me with Weekapog as to see how the song has changed and evolved from when they first debuted it up until now. So 
again, to tie into what you were saying, there are two, essentially two types of Wikipog. There's a type one and a type two. And type one is more um, sort of j- jam based, right? Uh, and like it builds and builds and builds and builds and peaks. And then there's type two, which is all improvisational. And I feel like that that's how you break down Fish's songs, basically. Yeah. There are songs that are have all of them have great hooks and they build and build and build. It builds a peaks, these these heights, you know what I mean? That's that's yeah. one type of fish song. And then you have fish songs that everyone wants to see because they're they get super experimental and jammy and funky and improvisational and they do weird, cool stuff. Yeah. So Weekapog is a song that falls into both of those categories. Yeah. It debuted in nineteen eighty eight. Jesus. Right. That's so, like their birth. So, yeah, yeah, it's been so as old as song, they are. Right. So this song is extremely uh, old. How many did you have to listen to, do you know, in total? I don't know how many there are. I listen to a lot. It goes from 88 all the way till now. So, I mean, just the years that is is insane. Yeah. But there's a really... So out of all of the ones I listened to, my favorite one was at the end of 2.0. Surprise, surprise. Uh, because this song gets raging when they start playing really quick. So this is a really quick, upbeat, funky one. It's 8-10-2004. Uh, 8-10-2004. Yeah. God, I, was, I think I was just starting high school. <laughs> I definitely would not have been allowed to go to this show. <laughs> uh, it was in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Okay. And it did come off of a Mike's Hydrogen Weekapog. It was That's the slot it fell into. So it was the third song in set two. Um, and this, it's just raging. This entire song is rage, rage. It's like, it's so thumping. And then at the almost at the very end, it builds to a peak. It's great, blah blah blah. The very end, they completely change tempo and they slow it way down. Oh, this is the halftime. Yeah, and I, this I've is and this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. And then at the very end and end of the song, Trey describes the origin of this song and where this song came from. Oh, we're definitely gonna have to take a peek at that. I'm not all in. You know, there's they do that those specials with artists where they come in and it's like they explain to the audience how they wrote the song and shit and I've never really been too into it but I have a funny feeling with Fish it's gonna be (laughs) way better (laughs) so they debuted the song in 88 and it's been in their set since in their repertoire since and like I said this song for me I love and is interesting to me because it falls into both versions of the types of Fish songs that are offered when they first started playing it, it, it was that type of song that just built to a peak and got everybody into stuff. Like you're saying, your pebbles and marbles, like, Wah! but then they started to jam on it and get super improvisational, and the song kind of morphed into something different. I'm curious. Now you're like, saying they've kind of gone back to this the standard Weekapog again, but well, this cur- song is transcends both categories. What I'm curious of is that, uh, you know, when they first started doing Weekapog in 88, I'm sure it was just played randomly throughout a set. But what I was saying that was interesting to you uh, during Baker's Dozen was that you finally got a Mike's Hydrogen Weekapog. They had stopped doing it for a while. No, we didn't get a Mike's Hydrogen Weekapog. Uh, w- w- so was it New that's Year's the one that we got thing it? they left out? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it this was past New Year's run they did it. Right. So uh, that's what I'm saying. Like they went through a huge stint of like either doing Mike's songs something different and then Weekapog or just not doing it and just playing Weekapog in a random slot. Right, right. They've 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 played around with where they've placed the song in a set. That's what I'm saying. It's it's always different. It can always be something cool. Sometimes it's just standard. Sometimes they go crazy on it. Sometimes they bust out and do just something completely experimental. One of the noteworthy shows is My Miami Show. And that was in 2015. It was for New Year's. Yeah. 
and Dre played the marimba and Mike played the guitar. They switched instruments and I was like, man, this is totally epic. Uh, that was one of those moments for me you were describing. I was like watching it and I'm like, I know this doesn't happen all the time. I know this is really rare. I know this is really cool. And I was just so into it because I was like, man, this is showing their versatility and how great they are as musicians. They're all picking up each other's instruments and they have such... Yeah, Just I mean, an improvisational style. We talked about it last episode. You don't get those moments uh, that often anymore. Like, there was a time where Trey had like a whole setup and he would have like this little multi percussion section. And it's some people, it's it was funny and a cool little gag to do. Other people, I know J3PO hates it. <laughs> he hates when Trey gets off the guitar and does the multi percussion stuff. He just wants him to do what he does best. Um, but at least but it's it, something different. Right. It's it's those moments like when they pull out the trampoline and they jump right. on the trampoline or they do the dance. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a catchy thing that gets you into that show. And you're like, oh, man, when I went to this show, it's like a vacuum solo. Some people hear fish and they hear the vacuum solo and they go, this is stupid. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I really, I after I found out what that was, I really wanted one. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Like, I want to hear fishmen freaking suck into a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> you should listen to And it to sounds, a, it does sound horrible. You're listening to it and you're like, this is dumb. Yeah. But it's, it's cool to see. Like, what other band do you know does that? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I don't know any band that does <laughs> gags on stage, really. I don't know. I'm just not. And they to it actually either. got me with that gag. That you, we were talking about the gag from Miami in 2014. That was the whole New Year's gag. It was Mega Fish. So there was a fishman that he was like flying over the audience. But the way they introduced that was Fishman came out on stage with his vacuum, and Trey's like, "Oh wait, 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 we gotta stop the show." Because there's something. Stuck, yeah, there's right? something wrong. Fish, fish got the vacuum sucked to his face, and I thought it was really happening. <laughs> I, like I thought this was really happening because I understood what a gag was, but I, I'm gullible. I fell into it. I was like, oh shit. I was like, their sound guys are letting this happen. Like they're really like messing up on stage. This is weird. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I was like, oh okay, I get it. It was great. They got me. Dude, this week of Pog is raging. It's fast. Yeah, listen to that, man. They're, like, really in it. So, anyway, I went back, you know, I used uh, Jambase as a good marker for when I read articles about fish. And they kind of map out all the Wikipogs that they've ever played. And they're obviously really noteworthy ones. 112191 is when they actually first broke out into improvisational jamming with this song. Uh, there's one that is quoted as the funkiest version of this song ever. Uh, four three ninety eight, and it's it's insane. That is honestly, I, I would argue that's the funkiest version of this song. Okay. Um, and then the one I listen to most often is the one we're listening to now. I just I don't know why I listen to it most often. I always find myself going back to it. Um, and again, at the end, this is where Trey explains um, what the song's origin is. And I'm I'm a type of geek that likes stuff like that. Yeah, I also I know you don't care about stuff like that, but I do. I also really like in this recording that we've been, you know, we've had on on air so far is that you get a lot of crowd reaction and I think you like that a lot I in love songs. That. I think you get to feel like you're getting pulled into their moment too when you hear other people reacting. For I also sure. think that's why last show you were talking a lot about you enjoy being inside MSG and I, I think I said it once or twice but a lot of that is just because sound gets trapped in there, they have the added lights, like the experience just gets that more intense just because of the environment. 
And right. I remember we were talking about festivals and being outside and the, you know, you, uh, I think it was Runaway Gym where we were talking about. That run you, Like an Antelope. Or Run Like an Antelope, yeah. I was talking about how at Magnaball, it was, I was concerned about getting Run Like an Antelope when I heard them start to play it because I'd only ever seen it inside. Yeah. With so lights and, you know, raging. I still, like, they, I know they've now swapped into, like, the second section of this jam right now. And yeah. all you hear are people screaming and yelling in the background. So it's, I, I, think, I think it just helps you get pumped. This song has like an auto pump for you. <laughs> it's like when you see Trey on stage jump up and down or start to smile really wide or just it's a collective feeling that you're all experiencing together in the moment and it's yeah. happening and you're like, yes, like you, I can feel this happening. You tend to, when we leave shows after the concerts, you tend to say like, oh man, so-and-so is really feeling it. Like they were doing this and doing that. I think that's a, like a really big sell for you is like when you get visual and auditory cue that everybody's into. I it. love this part of this, the song. Listen to this part of the song. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. They start changing, see? Changing it up. And they're they they sometimes are really good about that, and sometimes uh, you could say it's a little forced. But this one is a very natural progression of a jam, and like they, it doesn't. I, I remember that Tuesday of Baker's Dozen, the jam donut night. Sure. Uh, a lot of people, you know, were talking around us as we were trying to leave MSG, and they were just like, ah, you know, this felt really forced, and you know, they just took five songs and played on it forever. And I remember just spinning around and being like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is the coolest shit ever. Um, I find things like this really rare now. I feel like they're always trying so hard to fit so much music into their sets that they're playing a lot of stuff more standard now than they used to. Um, so when they get to moments like these, I'm automatically... They allow themselves to go with the flow. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing, I think, for them to do with the expectations of... You know, they have to get through a lot of material. Like, people go there to hear a lot of music. And they, I think they try to deliver on that. There's, their sets are starting to look like 13 or 14 songs long instead of four or five. Um, and, you know, now with the upcoming summer tour that they just announced, I can't believe we haven't talked about that yet. Um, they haven't we'll, announced we'll get into any... It. We'll get into it. The song is just starting to get uh, good. Oh, I don't want to... Yeah, I'm listening to this week of Pog. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is my favorite week of Pog. <laughs> Again, like you're saying, it just effortlessly flows into different parts of it, and they change. Oh, 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 it's great. <laughs> yeah, you're getting a little jam over there. <laughs> yeah, so Fish just announced their 2018 summer tour. Correct. Um, we were talking last podcast about festivals, assuming that they were going to announce a festival. To this day, they still have not. Um, something did happen on the Book of Faces the other day, uh, Watkins Glen made an event. Their social media person made an event for Watkins Glen and just put fish in the title and then immediately funny. deleted it. So Yeah, so th that happened That happened for this entire summer tour. Yeah, it someone was, stuff linked, was leaking. Someone leaked on Ticketmaster yeah. that uh, they were playing a date. After, was it, maybe it was in North Carolina? Was that, or the Georgia No, no, no. It was, the, it was a gorge. Gorge. Oh, the Gorge. Gorge Amphitheater, yeah. They leaked They leaked in hashtag fish in there. When they hashtag no, everybody you're, see, for you're the venue. See, you're talking about something different than I'm talking about. No, Ticketmaster mistakenly 
posted to you could purchase tickets um, and then immediately took it down before Fish announced their summer tour dates. Damn, man. A lot of people have been fucking up this year. So they leaked that, right? And then I read articles about the whole anticipated festival at Watkins Glen. I, there were a lot of articles circulating, circulating about that, but what you're saying is also true. Someone on Facebook leaked that, that they were actually going well, to be playing at it, Watkins Glen. Yeah, and I mean... It, uh, you want you want me to turn it up right now? <laughs> you gave me the finger. <laughs> yep. I gave you the finger. So that was the build-up. Where are we at now in the song? Like seven minutes, eight minutes? Where are ten we minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. It's ten of 14. I'm assuming this halftime is coming up right quick. I want to yes. hear a little bit of that halftime and then just hear him explain it. Uh, I'm really yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah, here we go. Listen. Slowing it down. And it's sunny. That must have been so hard for Gordon because he's like in such a groove of slapping that bass at a specific tempo and he's just got to fight <laughs> the urge. <laughs> that's hard, man. As a musician, I think that's so difficult. Changing your tempo like that? Yeah, I'm like fighting the urge to just get back to normal in my head. Really? I'm yeah. grooving in this. I, I love this. You find it. Yeah, you find the stride for sure. Because they're slowing it down, but it's super funky. Yeah. If you don't mind, I want to fast forward up to it's where he it's starts. It's coming right uh, now. It's coming right now. Oh, you're going to fast forward to the applause? No, no, no. To him explaining the... It's coming right now. Oh, word. Okay. There we go. You don't have to do anything. Oh, you can do just anything. listen to this amazing... Whoa! That was great, Wicked Pog. I'd be freaking out <laughs> in the crowd with these people. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Also, doing a lot of this research makes me realize that I was born at the wrong time. I, I feel like everybody feels like that. Once they get into the fish, yeah. yeah. They're like, damn, I wish. I like the, the one that I really wanted to be at, the great went. Let me mystify that song for you guys for a minute, um, just to tell you the story, because it's actually pretty funny. Do you guys know where Weekapog, Rhode Island is? <laughs> Weekapog, Rhode Island. I don't know where that is. Well, that was, uh, we, we, we played at a party in probably about 1987 in Weekapog, Rhode Island. See, they debuted in 88. Sean English's house. It was a beach party. Sean English. And, uh, Four of us drove back together in our in our um, Plymouth Voyager, and this is Plymouth Voyager, and which we gave away. Um, and that song, that that song came on the radio. Oh, I had a stormy feeling when she walked into. So we we started singing. Oh, trying to make a woman not to Interesting. So that's that's oh what a night. Art inspires oh, what a night. art. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. And now that's like gonna either like make you happy or ruin your life because you're gonna hear that song now and always hear Weekapog and vice versa. Yeah. You you're sending me down another rabbit hole now. I'm gonna start listening to that song nonstop for a little bit. It's gonna go it's by. by Frankie Valley. Oh, oh what a night. I thought it was Bee Gees. I'm sure a lot of people have covered that song. That's a really, like, disco-y error. Oh, God. Yeah. Ladies and 
Green. <laughs> <laughs> Word. Well, I think it's about time for us to take a little a, break. A little break. Let's and take a little break. Yeah, let's take a quick five minute break, as uh, Fish does. And when we come back, we're gonna, uh, you know, we were talking a lot about our first beers we drank last podcast. So uh, you were so kind enough to pick up our first beers that we've ever drank. So you, I believe I am drinking the Allagash Triple. Yep. Which I can't remember last time I had one. I'm, I'm really excited for that. And you've got a... Trogues Nugget Nectar. Nice. And that's fresh. Fresh. That's like fresh off the first batch that's hit the market. So yeah, just came out. That too. All right. So we'll see you in five minutes. Opened my uh, my bottle already. I didn't want I don't I don't want to hurt the listeners' ears with jangly keys and such. This is so pretty. <laughs> yeah, look at the color on that. That's beautiful. Your beer looks like a nice mahogany to me. <laughs> if wood could if wood could discern color, it's mahogany. Thanks, Ron Burgundy. <laughs> oh, no, it's a uh, deep, rich. Yeah, this beer is good. Trogue's Nugget Nectar. All right. Tis the season. I'm going to sip on this triple and see if it makes me relive my my baby beer days. And I, I hate to roll out this piper, but I really want to play for the background music. Uh, we were I, I mentioned it out loud, and I immediately got stuck to it while we were in our break. The Cross-Eyed and Painless from Jam Night. Sure. It is insane. And rocking and all the things we were talking about. A lot of high energy and they just rip on it. It's 33 minutes long. That's <laughs> crazy. I'm sure I loved every single minute of that. Yeah, I didn't want it to stop. I think this show, we were also on the floor. We got this really awesome experience of being on the floor like every other night. And I Yeah. I, thank you, Fish Lottery. Yeah. Thank you, Fish Lottery. Anyway, I'm going to sip on this triple and see what happens. Uh, it already smells great. It, uh, it. You know, you get all those banana So you're, notes you're drinking an Allagash Triple. Correct. Belgian-style golden Which was your, the first beer that got you into drinking craft beer. Correct. All right, let her, let her rip. Well, I smelled it. It smells like bananas. It smells great. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, it's all yeast, baby. And that's what I liked. Uh, it's it's slightly bitter at the end. It really helps to, to swallow the... The banana notes that you get, it's its its pretty intense. You should uh, take a little sip and mind yourself. <laughs> pretty powerful. Yeah, this is actually really good. Yeah. I may have never have... No, I've tried this beer before, but I can't remember the last time I've had it. So this is tasting almost like a new beer to me. This yeah. beer is really good. And I do not like this style at all. Belgian-style triples are not my thing. But yeah. this is very tasty. It's very smooth and fruity. 
It's it's very well balanced. Again, you get uh, this huge uh, shot in the face. Pow, pow, bananas, pow, hops. <laughs> and it's very well carbonated. I mean, it's all around. You said it, great beer. So is this help making you relive your first experience with this beer? It, you, you know, what it does is that it makes me remember how my palate used to be. And I think one of the things you were talking about last episode is that, you know, you've been drinking a ton of IPAs for years and you're right. experiencing palate fatigue and you've gone back to lagers and, and lighter styles. Yes. Um, this reminds me of the hangovers I used to get from drinking <laughs> beer like this. <laughs> it, so it's it bringing back bad memories for you. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Good and bad. <laughs> Every hangover When you first had this beer, <laughs> were you just like, ew, this isn't delirium? Um, honestly, this was a... a a relief from delirium because delirium's so boozy and like so intense that again I could only drink two of them. Thank God it only took two for me to get drunk. Cause yeah, but see, but this beer is nine percent. Yeah. So it's it's has a lot of alcohol in it, but it doesn't taste like that at all. And for me, that is the hallmark of a insanely well brewed beer. Yeah, it's it's as a home brewer, it's the hardest thing to to disguise. Alcohol right. is is the taste of it is so it pushes through everything. So. Right. Trying to compensate for that, like say, let's say you wanted to make your beer super hoppy because it's super high ABV, there's a point that you get to where no matter how much hops you add to it, it's still there. It's, it has to do with how you do your hop additions and, and how you get that taste to kind of balance out with each other. It's, it's really crazy. Interesting. Um, I don't know, I, I'm not that in depth of a. I'm not. I don't know that much about home brewing in that regard of how you can brew. I know that you can uh, add adjuncts to a beer to bump up the ABV without affecting the flavor. So you can add like ferment like fermentables yeah. that have no flavor. Yeah, uh, rice is one of them. Yeah, rice exactly. Is super dr- yeah, dry stuff out. Yeah, and bumps yeah. up the ABV. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's a complicated thing. A lot of the times, I feel like I'm trying to mask alcohol. I'm using a uh, uh, rice. Very clean. That's one of the main reasons why you use rice as a home brewer? Yeah. I, I like it. it. It dries out the the taste of the of the malt bill. It, it also extremely fermentable. It shoots the ABV up like crazy. Like, I only need three pounds of rice. And in a total grain bill, that's, what, like 5%? I don't know. It obviously, it depends. But you've got 13 pounds in your mash tun. You're using three pounds of rice. Jump it like two ABV. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So this is kind of seg- segueing us into our brewing topic, yeah. which you wanted to talk about today, which is, uh, I don't know, I guess basically describing a little bit about your your homebrew systems and yeah, your upgrades setup. to your systems. Yeah, your setup. Yeah, we were talking setup. last episode and, I, you know, we were talking about equipment, how important equipment is. And one, As of a home the, brewer, one, yes. one of the beautiful things about homebrewing, you know, I'm on a lot of forums. I, I uh, follow a lot of homebrewers on Instagram everybody's setup is different. And at a homebrew level, the most important thing you can do is get to know your system. So I, for example, mash in a, uh, in a igloo cooler. Right. Some people, you know, circulate their mash. They're lucky enough to have a garage or something like that. They have three burners and they have a second, uh, like Blickman pot or, you know, whatever brand pot and they drill holes in it and they turn it into a, a hot liquor tank. Right. And they put the coil in it, and they recirculate the beer, and, and that keeps the beer uh, at a specific temperature while they're mashing and c- greatly increases their uh, 
their efficiency. But, you know, I, I homebrew in an apartment in New York City, so I don't have that luxury. I have to figure out how to just do it on my stove in my kitchen, basically. So I can't mash that way. I have to use the cooler. And then on Instagram, I've seen guys with, like, square coolers that you take to, like, the beach. I've seen, you know, a plethora of different vessels. And by and large, the most important thing at a homebrew level is mashing and keeping a steady, as best a steady temp as you can. So... I picture these guys with these like huge tabletop, basically looking square coolers. And I'm like, how the hell do they freaking do this? I feel like if I pop the lid off that for a second, because there's so much more surface area that it's going to cool down so fast. I would have to like throw it in. I watched one guy drill a hole into said mash tun and like he pumps it from the Blickman, like through the cooler too, like a hot liquor tank. Same thing we're talking about. I've seen crazy stuff. So for me, it's just just the igloo cooler, just the Blickman pot, and I have two uh, glass uh, carboys. I have a six and a half and a five. And so that's the basic setup, though. If you're yeah. a legit, you know, regular five-gallon brewer, that's your basic setup. That's basically what everybody works with because that's what you have to do. Like you're saying, this sort of do what you can to replicate a commercial brewery setup on a homebrew level scale. Right, but, I mean, it's not even commercial level because either it's – a uh, hot liquor, it, uh, most breweries, like commercial size breweries, are either jacketed uh, mash tuns. Right. So they're using steam to heat up their mash or their um, HLTs. You know, the hot, they have the hot liquor tank with a coil in it and they pump the beer that they're pulling from the mash tun through the coil, comes back out and recirculates over the top. So it's one of those two options. So at a homebrew level, you can obviously have a jacketed mash tun. Unless, I don't, I don't know who even does that, hooked up to steam somehow. Or you have that recirculating and again it's a space thing yeah i don't i don't even understand how i i would have to like have an extra room in my house and just kind of set it up that way there's a really awesome uh uh company called the electric brewing company okay. and they basically uh put together these massive controllers that uh control your electric elements of your uh, hot liquor tank, your mash tun, and your boil kettle. And they sell it as a kit. So you can buy it and install it, and it's super cool because obviously the only thing you have to worry about is the the uh, pots getting hot. So they either have to be like on um, on like something that's wood or stainless steel so that you just right. don't start a you know, fire. Sure. <laughs> your, your pot doesn't burn through the floor or something. Right. I don't know. Um, but it's really interesting because that's how people are getting around it. They're doing these electric elements, and that allows you to be inside. There's also a lot of problems with, like, gas and just having open gas. There's regulations. There's whatever. So if you wanted to maybe graduate from just being a home brewer to being, like, a small little microbrewery, it's so much easier to do if you have these electrical elements than if you have... Uh, natural gas. Natural gas is pretty much the only other way to go if you're not doing a jacketed, steamed thing at a commercial level. Right. And it, 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 every time we go to a brewery that has them, you always see it has to be a certain distance away from the wall. There has to be all this ventilation for it. So for someone who's just trying to get going and make that next step, it's way easier when you can just buy a one to three barrel Blickman pot, drill a hole in it, and you know put in these electric things. And it pretty much is just stepping you up from what you've been doing at a five-gallon level. You're just kind of doing it a little bigger. Um, I know a brewery, a local brewery here, who was doing that for a while while they were waiting for their um, new system to be fabricated was Volksbeer. They were brewing in basically three-barrel uh, Blickman pots. And 
I remember like watching, you know, the Brewer Brew there, and I was just like, wow, I could do that. I do it already. Right. Sure. I already I'm already sure. doing it. The only sure. difference is the pumps and the, uh, and they have the 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 hot liquor tank set up with the uh, recirculating coil. So. Right. So I think when you're brewing, the goal is to have beer, have beer zero, have zero contact with the outside in the air. So Once what you, you really boil. want, you right? Boil. What you yeah. really want is to have a, a system or uh, you know a tubing or whatever set up using gravity. Most times, some brewers have to work with yep. that gets your beer from your brew kettle. To your to your boil kettle, yeah, mashed on boil kettle, and then into even your carboy at the end, yeah, without getting exposure to oxygen and outside and the well, air. Th- it's outside because I'm obviously you want to pump uh, oxygen into your finished like boil kettle product while you're putting it in the fermenter. That's that's what they do. They inject the um, the fur. They they have the what is it? The oxygen stone. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, but the idea, yes, is to not expose. But once you boil it, it's basically sterilized, and you don't want anything to touch it. You don't want right. No any bacteria. Yeah. yeah. No contaminants. So, right. 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 I mean, even at that point, I mean, the the tubes and the gravity and the whatever. I'll, I'm starting to see more and more homebrewers getting these little pumps. Um, it's just becoming. We were talking about this last episode. Just more accessible. Things are getting cheaper. Um, I actually, we were talking about. Uh, Hop extract last episode, and right. I then scroll on Instagram, and a dude had just ordered a Centennial hop extract. That's really funny. So it, it's just I think, it's happening. Yeah, you can get lupulin powder now as well as a home brewer. Yeah, I mean these are again things that are going to be really awesome to start experimenting with, and For I sure. think it's we're going to see a surge in just. Uh, they just opened the American Homebrewer Association uh, the 2018 competition. I swear to God, there's going to be lupulin-powdered and hop-extracted beers in that competition. For sure. Yeah, that, that'd be cool. That'd be great. It's going to be insane. It's, it's almost like you now have to ask the homebrewer when they submit it, like, how they made it. Yeah. Because you're going to start getting beer that's crazy floral, and you're going to be like, what the fuck? How'd you, did you dry hop that, like, six times? And you're like, no, I used hop-extract. Cool. Uh, that's exciting to me. Yeah. I think it's cool to see where things are headed. Yeah. I think homebrewers are the most creative people in terms when it comes to brewing. Yeah, because they still have that artistry to them. Whereas, you know, when you graduate to a commercial, semi-commercial system, like a lot of things become automated, like you're saying. So I think people at a homebrew, I mean, that's why most major breweries you go to still have a, you know, brew magic or a very small... Uh, system, system yeah. right, where they can experiment and make cool batches of beer and then graduate that up to their larger system. Yeah, I mean, a, a large part of it, I thanks to you and you, know, you working in the industry, I've got to talk to a lot of brewers and every one of them tells me that their creativity goes down because they just have to be pumping out products so often. Right. I mean, you're, you just end up, you're, you're whatever system you graduate to ends up becoming a machine and you're running it almost 24-7 to try to just produce beer. Um, right. So they don't really have the, I mean, we were talking about you on the one gallon and me on the five. The time it takes us to brew is no different. Just the outcome volume is different. So these guys are just brewing nonstop. When are you going to find the time to brew on a side system unless you hire another brewer, which they don't often get to do? It's just like a nature of the business. And that's one of the reasons why I think for me personally, if I were ever to do brewing at a professional level, it would always stay small. Because it allows you that creativity. It allows you uh, to not have to worry about things like massive hop contracts to ensure that you can make a very specific style. It's just very lucrative for a small home brewer to just do different shit. Sure. And 
the only thing you're worrying about at that point is physical space to store all the cool shit that you're making. Yeah. I mean, fermenters, no matter how big or how small, the footprint's pretty large. They have to also be hooked up to glycol most often than not. So you're talking about a lot of stuff that begins to not only help you produce better quality product and obviously increase your efficiency and increase your um, replication uh, ability, but it also hinders you in a way. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. So speaking of homebrew, homebrewing setups and a homebrew level, what would you say like you've done to your, your system to kind of try to get you closer to the professional um, so when I first moved into my apartment, I could only make Saison's and Belgian beers because I didn't have a fridge. Refrigeration, right. So that was like the first big, like, uh, obstacle to jump over. Uh, and it, I, it, I didn't even get there. Most people don't even get there when they're homebrewing. They don't care. They, they don't make lagers at all. They just stick to the ales category and then kind of let it... Let the temperature, the ambient temperature be what it'll be. Yeah, and it, it, it again, affects how you can make shit. In the summertime, I right. only made Saison's. 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 Because they ferment at high temperature. Right, and it was like 80 degrees around in my closet, in my apartment. So once I got the, the first fridge, because I now have two fridges. <laughs> right, so, so your first upgrade that's of a sort of professional level was refrigeration. Right, controlled which fermentation cool. temperatures. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah, that's I, right out the gate, putting you leagues, you know, ahead of everyone and else. And it was an interesting project. I had to go to Radio Shack, uh, buy a project box, uh, and basically build a thermometer. I had to order a part on the internet. I had to wire it all up. Um, and it, it basically allows me to shut off the fridge when it hits a specific temperature, and that's what allows me to maintain. Good yeah, that's temp. super cool. Um, so that was the first upgrade, and then the second upgrade to that fridge was I put a, a wooden collar on it, and I drilled tap handles into it and turned it into a, a keyser, and that was a huge. Right. So you have like a you have like a kegerator. I guess they call it a keyser because it's a freezer. Yeah. Right. Um, so you took a freezer. From I stepped into home, the keyser. Home Depot. Yeah. Yep. Step into the freezer. <laughs> and you essentially turned it into a keg grinder. Correct. But it's the size of a, like, low boy kitchen, like, residual, like, freezer. freezer. Yeah. Right. That was a big upgrade, too, because now I could have one refrigerator that was just for uh, serving, and now I have a smaller. The one that I have for fermenting is quite a deal smaller. It's like a little square one. Um, I think it's, I think, I forget how they measure them. One of them is 7.2, yeah, whatever the units. units. Cubic yeah. units, yeah. And the other one's like five. Right, so now you have two <laughs> freezers. Correct. And w one is for fermenting. Solely fermenting, And correct. one you keep at serving temperatures because right. you have your taps attached yeah. to it. And that opens up a lot of stuff. Not only does the serve, uh, the fermenter allow me to now do lagers if I want to, and I could uh, crank the temperature down, uh, the serving uh, freezer, keyser, is now for cold crashing. I can, I can just do a lot of stuff with it. If I wanted to just up my output, I could just do them both for fermenters and I could fit up to like, I don't know, what is that? Four, five carboys in there. So it, it just allows me to produce more beer if I want you to. You can fit five carboys? In total. If I used them both as fermenters. Oh, okay. Fermenters. If you're using both the freezers. Got it. Yeah. So I, it, it was a massive upgrade for me. Uh, it definitely changed a lot. Uh, I think 
the next one after that, I, I originally, when I first got my system, obviously I went straight to kegging. Um, I had two right, kegs. So you're saying getting the temperature control allowed you to brew more often, right? And brew different styles, yeah. And, and right, expand the different styles of beer that you brewed. Yeah. So you have not, you have or have not brewed a lager? I still have not brewed a lager. Got it. Mostly because lagers and pilsners are just not my my cup of tea, like not my style. So it's it's not that I don't want to make them. I I, right. I at one point will, and I think I have with Jade three PO very many a time. Um, they're also a little more difficult. They say you should really, even as a home brewer, only make lagers in the winter time because your tap water that you're pulling into your apartment right. is colder. Correct. Um, so when you're cooling down the beer with your wort chiller, you can get to that. I think it's supposed to. It's in the 40s, 42 degrees, I think you want to get it down to, something like that. Um, it's pretty low. And if you're trying to do that in the summertime when your water's like at warmest, maybe 68, 69 degrees, it's not going to happen. So it's, I've seen people like take tubes and they run them through like a jockey box and the jo- and the, the tube will cool down the beer and try to get it there. But it's, it's rough going uh, at a homebrew level if you don't have access to temperature control, just how you're funneling your beer. Um, and then the third biggest upgrade for me was I have an extra keg now, and that keg just has sanitized water in it. Um, I think that helped a lot uh, for my serving lines whenever a beer comes out. I, I try to stick to the same rule as, like, bars are supposed to. That often don't. You know, they're supposed to clean your lines, uh, what is it, once a month, I think they're supposed to do? Twice a week, I believe. Is the what they're supposed to do. You're lucky if they do it once a month. <laughs> Or at all. Certified Cicerone <laughs> teaches you it's supposed to be every two weeks. Every two weeks. So, I mean, I when there's not beer in my lines, my serving lines, there's sanitized water. Um, it, it's kind of annoying if you leave the freezer plugged in because your lines will freeze. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely better than, you know, just keeping old beer in lines and having them corrode. And uh, Tubing for a homebrewer is very expensive. Uh, it's probably more expensive than ingredients are. So sure. it, it, it helps to be conscious of it and just stay on top of it. Just do the sandy water. It helps you in the end. No so what. it sounds like you also sort of tried to um, maintain the cleanliness practices of a professional brewery. Yeah, man. Another thing you see on Instagram and like people don't really realize it because they're so excited to just be sharing their beer and their process with the world. Right. I've seen some gross, like ugly setups where I'm like, I'm not drinking any of your beer. Yeah. I'm super OCD about that shit. And it's funny because I'm not a neat like person. Right. But my brew equipment's spotless. Right. My fridge is spotless. Right. I cleaned my fridge the other day when we were uh when we were having a brew day when we made uh we made a cucumber saison. It's fermenting right now in the in the fermenter. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um just give it a taste. Yeah, definitely. Um Awesome. Yeah. So I went to again, I guess we should talk about this because I prepped you guys. This is saying I went to Millhouse Brewing Company. In one of our last podcasts, there's a not new, a couple years old, cool um, New York brewery up in Poughkeepsie called Millhouse Brewing. And they one of their flagship beers is a cucumber cream ale. And I am a huge fan of cucumber. I know it's a very polarizing flavor, but I love cucumber and I've tried to brew with cucumber before. And I've read so much research on brewing with cucumber. Um, they have a cucumber cream and I tried to get the recipe out of the brewer and he wouldn't tell me. So anyway, the beer was great. I drank it exclusively when I was up there a couple weeks ago and I came back with the, the, you know, fire lit under my ass of wanting to try to make a beer that was smelled and tasted like cucumber. Yeah. And I, you brought a really interesting, uh, 
method of adding cucumber to a beer that I would never have thought to do. I just, I found um, it on a homebrewing blog. Yeah. So, I mean, when I've used cucumber and I've done it, uh, I've put it, uh, I've shaved the cucumber down. You always um, want to peel it. Uh, yeah. Cause the, the skin's it's, very it's bitter. It's very bitter. Correct. Um, and I put it in a muslin bag and submerged it in, in, uh, either the fermenter or I did it one time even on when I racked on a keg. Um, the idea being that if you do that later in the game, you're just getting the straight smell. Um, very little impact on taste. But you had the idea of taking the cucumbers and I th- believe you soaked them in water. Is that what you did? You put them in a... No. So what I did was uh, we were brewing a five-gallon batch of beer. So I used two total cucumbers, which I I would have used more, but I was kind of trying to be judicious because I've never done this before. So I wanted to just like see where we were at with the flavor. So I took two whole cucumbers. I peeled them, obviously, to get the peel off because it's extremely bitter, as you said. Uh, then I de-seeded them. And what I did was I grated them on like a cheese grater, a box grater. Okay. And then I took that like you know grated cucumber and i put that in a hop sock and then i put that over a colander and i let the liquid drain out of that so uh. what i basically threw and when you know i we were, i was done i took that i tied it up and i threw it into the beer at flame out right so the entire time the beer was cooling down with the war chiller and transferring into the carboy the you know, sachet of grated cucumber was in there. Right. And I mean, that's where you're getting the flavor of cucumber into the beers at right. Flame Out, just soaking it in there. Right. And then I, th- I believe you said the goal was to use, we're going to grate two more cucumbers when we go to rack it to the keg. And we're going to do the same thing, grate them up, let that water drain out. And we're going to put that water into the keg and rack on that. Yeah, so I, I'm going to go all by taste now at this point. We yeah. tasted it for, you know, the original gravity or final gravity reading, original gravity, OG. Yeah. Um, and it was great. It tasted a lot like cucumber, but that was just, you know, wort water. Right. There was no fermentation that happened. So we used French Cezanne yeast. That's going to dry this out right. and make it slightly spicy. Yeah. Is the notes that it's going to impart. So I'm when we take another reading, you know, a gravity reading, I'm going to taste the beer and kind of see where I want to go from there. My plan, yes, was when we keg to put some cucumber juice in the keg with it, just so you get that punch in the face, uh, you know, and the aroma of cucumber. But if it tastes a lot like cucumber already, I might not do that. Cool. That sounds great. I'm excited. But I'm glad we talked about this because every time I tell people I brew a beer with cucumber, the first thing they ask me is, how did you use the cucumber? Yeah. Because I think there are so many different ways to use it, and we've used it very unsuccessfully. And yeah. And very successfully, and there are a lot of, you know, minefields you have to navigate Well, that's cucumber. why I like this new way we're doing it, because when we tried to just add it into a fermenter, or you just try to add it when you rack on kegs, the problem is, is that it's, it's like when you soak cucumbers in water to serve to people. After a little bit, even when they recommend you doing that with just regular water that you're going to serve, they tell you to, Which I love to, doing. to soak it for like an hour and that's it, to yank it. Right. Because the cucumber immediately starts to decompose because right. it's sitting in water. Cucumbers so, are like 80% water. Right. So, so it, they just start to, yeah, like return back to their water estate. And any time we've ever tried to do any flavored anything with fruit or anything like that, once it gets to like a day or two... It starts. It all goes bad in the same sort of tasting way, and yeah, like like rotting, rotting produce. Yeah, I mean it's not rotting. I wouldn't describe it as that. I mean you're making it sound like I'm drinking. I'm painting poop. gray. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not like that, and, and it's not. It's it's not. 
that it, it would taste like spoiled milk or anything like that. It tastes more like a cucumber still does, but just slightly different. Yeah. And that slightly different is just like, uh, it's not the taste that you're trying to impart from the get. And it's really hard to do that. Just get that concentrated taste. And I know one thing that we've talked about a lot is like dehydrating whatever you're trying to use and grinding up into a powder. Yeah, I still want to do that. Um, I would still like to do that with cucumber. My original plan, but we obviously, this takes a lot of time, so we didn't have time to do this, was to, yeah, cut cucumber into slices, uh, dehydrate that, and then grind up the dehydrated cucumber into a powder. Yes, that that I still would like to use it that way. I know that a lot of uh, professional brewers, when they make things taste like cucumber, use extracts. This guy at Millhouse assures me he never used an extract, so he has done it a way that we could replicate. Um, but a lot of breweries use extracts. There's, I would love to just experiment with it always. I love cucumber. I mean, to be fair, I think the reason why commercial brewers use extract, I don't know if you've ever seen like when Bissell does their uh, their lemon zest beer. Uh, no. They have to. Lime zest? The dangle? Lime zest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beer the I've always wanted to freaking try that is my white well from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They if you're listening, have- Bissell Brothers... Make it. <laughs> Sen got a jabru some dangle. Yeah. Uh, they. How do, so, sorry, how do they? They have it? photos on Instagram of all of their brewers have to drop what they're doing. No CIP cycles or anything. They all have to stop their maintenance or whatever, and everybody's just got to start zesting limes. And it's a shit ton of them. We're talking, like, thousands of limes. So yeah, I that's think the, that's a commitment. Zest zests when you add them to beer is a big commitment. So so I, I think extract stops you from all that labor. It, it's just it's just efficient to do it that way. Everything with being a commercial brewer is about efficiency. That's all they really care about. So sure, yeah. Um, and time. I mean, think about how much time you're taking away from all those people you're making zest all that stuff. I'm surprised yeah. they make them do that. I would just like get a bunch of volunteers. I'm sure they could garner hundreds of people to come and volunteer. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why volunteer. It's, it's a very interesting thing. And maybe we should um, go into, uh, I, th- I think what I want to talk about next podcast and I'll hint at it in this one is how breweries uh, feel and work with uh, locals. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to get into that. Local people, local businesses, yeah, local like certain brews, environments. Uh, I don't want to give a, too much away because oh, I want to okay, talk about it okay. in the podcast. But basically, like some breweries the are, really, of are breweries. really cool with that. Some breweries do yoga on Sundays inside their breweries. Some don't because it's liability and you don't want people around your equipment. So uh, maybe some, more how breweries interact with the local community. Correct. And some of them are really nice and like want people to be involved and others are super private. So we'll get... We'll, we'll, cool. That's a cool topic for next time. Um, but yeah, I think... The last thing I want to talk about before we head out, um, we have this uh, Bell's Hop Slam Ale that we have to try. It's right, not one of our um, one of our first beers that we're drinking. But I'm almost done with my triples, so I'm ready to move on to that. Cool, man. Uh, yeah, I just I grabbed this uh, Bell's Hop Slam. Hop Slam is a once a year release from Brewery. Bell's Brewery from out of Brewery. Cal- Kalamazoo, from Michigan. Bell's is one of my favorite breweries of all time. You got to go to Kalamazoo, Michigan. I did, I did, Bell's. I did. I got to visit their brewery and their uh, eccentric cafe, which is the brew house that they have in downtown Kalamazoo. Uh, yeah, it, they're just one of those legacy breweries that I've always loved. You know, they're like a Sierra Nevada for me. So whenever they have, you know, a seasonal release or something new, I always try to give it a taste. Their beers are 100% solid. I have yet to have a beer of theirs that I don't like. So... 
Uh, that's hard have for you, me to so say. Have about you movie. have you ever had this beer? No, I'm you've never to had Top Slam. No. Whoa, I, I'm so glad I'm here with you to experience this <laughs> for your first time. Well, let me uh, let me get it going. So I hated this beer when I first tried it. I'm just gonna say that I hated it. You're getting me so excited right now. <laughs> well, it's like all you're good gonna things. hate it. It's, no, I said I hated it. It's like all good things in your life for me. You know, I think I'm gonna hate something going into it, and then it ends up blowing my mind. Why do you think you were gonna hate it? I did hate it. Oh, Paige, I didn't think I was gonna right hate now? it. Sorry, listen. That's that. Our um, idol. So this is um, 2017. Not to derail the fish real fast, but this is a new keyboard for him, which was really awesome. Yeah. Um, it now sits on top of. Uh, I forget what that orange keyboard is. I think it's not his uh, electric piano. It's his um, whatever. I'll How many you. pianos does Paige have? We counted at one Two, point. Two, four, Ten? six, eight. 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 Okay, I knew we counted at one point. He has two on each side. Grand and the uh, harp on the, what is it? It's not a harpsichord. It's the clav. So piano clav. He's got the. Uh, it's not a glockenspiel. I don't think we I should go into this name. because yeah. you're not going to remember any names, <laughs> and this is not something that my, our listeners are going to want. Uh, cool. Um, <laughs> this beer smells great. Yeah. So I, it the re- like it's funny. I so I just tried this again, and again I picked this beer because it's in the vein of like us retrying beers that we tried a, a long time ago, early in our beer drinking career, and this was one of them. This smells I like originally Centennial hops. I originally hated this beer because I thought it was too sweet, smells, and this is a double IPA from them. Yeah, it smells like Centennial hops. Double IPAs for me generally are sweeter. When I have a good double IPA, it's dry and balanced. So I think it's traditional to the style for that malt characteristic to come forward. I just personally don't like it. I'd rather have a drier double IPA. Yeah, I mean, but that's hard to do. That's what I'm saying. Most double IPAs are sweeter because you have to balance out all the hops you dump into the, the beer. That's good. That tastes good to me. Um, it is. Uh, I understand why you like it. Um, do you, are you really able to pull up the specs hoppy. on this beer? Really yeah, quick? I totally can. Yeah. So Hopslim is a double IPA from... Bells. This can, this is new. I don't know if they've ever always had this on the can or the label. It says double India pale ale brewed with honey. So that's the first time I've ever seen this. See, but that makes me feel good about myself. No, you think it's sweet. Where when I first tried this beer, I, I could pick up the sweet notes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a little too hoppy for me. Uh, I don't like beer that finishes bitter and leaves me thirsty. I like beer that actually quenches my thirst and I can slam more. What would I don't you, know if that what makes would me you guess the alcohol by volume is on this beer? Eight. Yeah, that's where you would put it at? Eight. At least. What is it, 12? Do you want to know what it is? 11. 10. Uh. This beer is 10%. So getting back to me saying before, I think the hallmark of a really good brewer is being able to hide your alcohol. Yeah. This, for me, I would never in a million years of my life depended on it guess this beer was 10%. Yeah. Um, it says starting with six different hop varieties added to the brew kettle and culminating with a massive dry hop addition of Simcoe hops. So I was Simcoe, I and, love Simcoe, Simcoe and Centennial, hops. or they smell very similar to me. Yeah. Um, Bell's hop sample possesses all the most complex hopping schedule in the Bell's repertoire. Selected specifically because of their aromatic qualities, these Pacific Northwest varieties contribute to a pungent blend of grapefruit, stone fruit, and floral notes. I would definitely say when you pop this can, it just reeks. Um, I don't really get a lot of the stone fruit or grapefruit. I get just straight. It smells like grass. 
<laughs> see, and it's fresh so, see, it's so, I'm so glad I'm here with you to experience your first time trying this beer because that's what I thought when I first tried my Nugget Nectar. Smelled it like tasted grass. like grassy grass and I loved it. Yeah, this is still, I get where you're getting the sweetness. I, I think that's. Because apparently they brew it with honey. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it, it lingers on your tongue, the sweetness. And again, I don't like that. I like beer to be drier. So that's the one thing I will say about this that I don't like. I don't like double IPAs being sweet. They often are. They often That's are. That's why I like it. I think pretty, they often isn't are. reciprocal a double IPA? No. This will be reciprocal, the beer that that started my hop journey. Anyway, so talking of that, speaking to that, though, this Bell's started as a brewery in 1984, the year that I was born. So <laughs> I'm not going to announce how old that is, but you can do the math. Think about <laughs> them making a beer like this, you know, in their early 80s. In the 80s, in the 90s. Yeah. This beer fits into our beer lifestyle now. Dude, that and, is and falls into place, yeah. you know, with everything that's being produced now. Think of how on the, you know, their finger on the pulse they were with making this beer way before their time. Yeah. And he's using, uh, obviously, advanced hopping techniques and stuff right. that probably other home, you know, other Yeah, you just said they put, like, they put hops in the mash, right? Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. The, I, I wonder, and... Uh, one of the things that I kind of wish I had as a home brewer, and this is, uh, I think this is how we'll end the podcast, is the new additions of equipment that I would like. And one of them is to uh, the tool to test your pH, your water pH. Because yeah. a lot of the stuff that you add, the gypsum salts and all that stuff, that uh, you're affecting the pH of the beer, and it helps to bring out, you know, hop flavor and specific things. So right. I, think, uh, I think that's pH, where I'm off to next. Yep. Hard and soft water. All these different things affect... The hop, the actual hop flavor you get on the finished product, right? And that's the last thing a home brewer does to like hit that commercial level is you start treating your water. Your water is the last thing that you don't really have control over, and the last thing that most people can do to, to you know change the outcome of their beer because the equipment for it is very expensive. Those meters are like two, three hundred dollars, so it's a huge investment. Um, it's something that you use forever, though. The same meter that you would buy for a home brewer, I watch them use in a commercial brewery, so. Nice. It, it's a good and sound investment as a home brewer if you're if you're if you're wanting to make that step. But uh, we tried filtering the water when we brewed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't use like a like a Brita to try to filter. It takes filtering water it takes like over an hour at that point. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's I I like got on this train this like water purification train because I was like you know what. Pull the chlorine. Yeah, that's like the, the last thing we're not doing. That's not professional when we brew. Yeah. So, yeah, we went to Lowe's, Home Depot, whatever, and we bought a pure that attaches water to filter yeah. that attaches to your faucet with the little tiny stream. Yep. And we had to use that to fill a five-gallon. No, we fill up about eight, we eight fill up gallons. seven to Yeah, no, how big is your brew pot? Ten, ten gallons. Ten so gallons, we had to yeah. fill up eight gallons worth of that into a... Took over an hour. It was Into insane. Boy, okay. I'm glad we're kind of not doing that anymore. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've had a ton of fun. This is another great episode to me. Uh, I think Makisupa Policeman is a great place to uh, take. This us was out. one of my. This was one of my early on uh, gems that I always wish I got. Oh man! And whenever are. I get it, I'm happy. We're such different fish fans, <laughs> but it's fine because we're both fish fans, and that's what matters. Yeah. And Boom. Uh, so thank you all for listening. This is the kid himself. And I'm the Lizza. And uh, we will see you next time. Uh, Thanks for listening to Gotta Jabru. We'll see you next episode. <laughs>